Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey there, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're going to speak with a member of Congress who is also a doctor. He represents the Coachella Valley. That's right. Dr. Raul Ruiz is one of just 17 physicians in Congress. I look that up, Scott. He has served there since 2013. How many lawyers are there? Yeah, we'll we'll get to that (laughs) later. Prior to that, he was an ER doctor who dedicated his practice to underserved communities like his hometown of Coachella. And he joins us now via Skype. Congressman Dr. Ruiz, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thought we'd just throw in both of your titles there for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into the news, can you tell us, like, where are you and how is your family doing? I know your wife is or was a nurse and you have two little, uh, you have twin girls who are probably around five. I do. I do. They're five years old and uh, and they built a fort out of sheets and chairs and they slept in their fort in their room. So we're trying to find different ways to keep them occupied uh, innovatively (laughs) so that they don't go stir crazy inside our place during the uh, stay at home orders. I hear you on that. I have a four-year-old and seven-year-old boy. So it sounds like you are in at home in Coachella Valley right now. I'm in my office and I am with one staff, uh, only everybody's working from home and doing teleconf, uh, teleconferencing, Uh, and video conferencing work, but uh, it's either my home or my office. Got it. Well, as I said, I mean, we want to talk a little bit about um, kind of your, where you see us at since you spent time in an emergency room, in a rural emergency room, um, and we are hearing so much concern about the readiness of our healthcare system for this and so much work that we know the governor and others have put in to trying to get all the personal protective equipment out to them, to get the ventilators refurbished. Where, how do you feel like we are doing in California at this moment? We're behind, and we're behind everywhere in our country. Uh, California is very dependent on the federal government's ability to provide the supplies to increase uh, and support the healthcare systems, uh, especially prior to the surge. And uh, in general, we're behind. Look, I'm an emergency physician, practiced in the emergency department during the H1N1 pandemic, and I'm also a public health expert 
with uh, a specialization in disaster aid. And so very early on when we saw the virus spreading and its effects in the in Wuhan, China, and then, you know, in different countries, that's the time where our federal government should have been sounding the alarm, educating the American people, start to uh, empower people with the messaging uh, and setting the expectations of of uh, social distancing, of washing your hands, as well as revving up the production line in a massive form for uh, masks, gowns, face shields, tests, and uh, and ventilators. But as as we all know, uh, the president downplayed it uh, and uh, really said it was under control, that it was going to go away, and and really really gave false, uh, contradictory information with mixed messages, even within his own administration. And that has had repercussions. As we know, there are some governors who are very late to take this serious. Uh, and even locally in my community, there were some city mayors who were just basically saying that this is a partisan issue, that uh, that that they didn't understand why we're making a big fuss because you know the flu uh, had uh, had some also some some similar uh, characteristics and and so it it, it was difficult to really rally the local community uh, and uh, the national community to to really take this serious. Uh, before there's the threshold and exponential rise in transmission and uh, and so that we can alter that curve of transmission in order to keep it under the healthcare capacity. Right. And, and if we're going to really make a difference, we really need a, a whole of government, uh, aggressive, uh, population-wise social distancing so that, so that we can prevent uh, what's happening in Italy. But unfortunately, you know, we have some segments who believe it, some segments who don't, and now we're seeing the repercussions. Are you saying that when you say we're behind, do you mean California is behind? Because California was, you know, one of the first out there with the stay-at-home orders. Uh, the Bay Area was the very first in the country. Uh, are you saying that California is behind or that, that for the lack of a federal message from the White House, has made it difficult to get the message through to, you know, say, the governor of Florida, who said he just yesterday found out that it was casually transmitted, the virus that is. So California is ahead of the curve compared to other states. There's no doubt about it. Uh, governor Newsom uh, called for a statewide stay-at-home policy. Uh, governor Newsom has been mobilizing uh, w where he can tests uh, and school closures. Uh, local counties have been doing the same uh, very um, earlier than other locations. But here's the limit, is that we don't live in a vacuum. There's limitations in the amount of tests that we did uh, in California simply because there weren't enough tests nationwide and the federal government wasn't moving fast enough to approve tests or the reagents for those tests and deliver those tests. And then when California received some tests, uh, those tests were malfunctioned. And so there was an issue with those tests uh, uh, supplies as well. So, so California is ahead of the curve, but as a country, we're behind. Uh, and, and the moment to, uh, and, and by the way, we still don't have enough tests, uh, and we don't have the rapid 10 test turnaround capacity 
to make quicker decisions in not only in the care of patients, uh, but also in the surveillance and containment for certain pockets of neighborhoods where we may see a, a faster surge. So the numbers that we're, and that's very important to understand uh, because the numbers that we're seeing now about the rate of transmission and the test is an undercount. Uh, because there have been people who have not been tested who have the virus. There have been people who have been symptomatic and didn't go to the hospital that had the test uh, that weren't counted. So we have to we have to be analytical about how we use the current numbers of those that have tested positive uh, in our planning and just assume that the degree of spread is higher than the numbers that are being reported. Well, I mean, that gets me to sort of what is your practical advice? Because people obviously, I think in California, um, you know, have largely paid attention to these stay at home orders. We're now seeing some sort of new updated uh, advice around wearing masks if you go places like the grocery store. Um, what are you telling your constituents and Californians in general? Like where what should we all be doing personally? Exactly. That's a very, very good point, you know, because here we're talking about the nitty-gritty of numbers and tests, but the practicality and the clinical judgment that people should have is to basically understand that the virus is transmitted through air droplets when somebody um, sneezes, coughs, uh, when there's mucus, uh, and it lands on other people and objects and you touch those objects and somehow it has to get into your eyes, your nose and your mouth. And the, the distance of travel of those air droplets after a sneeze is about six feet. That's why the recommendation is to stay, stay away, you know, stand six feet away. Some people are even saying that as, as people talk, sometimes they, they shoot out those little droplets when they, they speak. You know, they spit a little, and so those may carry that uh, virus as well. So that's why social distancing is so very important, uh, that people maintain their distance from one another. The other thing to pay attention to in, in terms of understanding the process is that a virus uh, needs a host to survive. So in the absence of a vaccine, there's two ways that the peak is going to flatten and come down. One is that we keep our distance from one another so the virus in that particular host doesn't find another subject, another host, and gets transmitted uh, and eventually goes into a vulnerable person. So that's the social distancing way of flattening the curve. The other way the curve flattens is that the virus has infected so many people in massive amounts that there's a herd immunity, meaning that there is a critical number of people that have already been infected that have an immune response so the virus cannot live and be transmitted into that other, per that other person. So those are the only two ways in the absence of a vaccine that we're going to really flatten this curve. Now, we don't want to have the massive infection where we get to a herd immunity just yet, right? We wanna do herd immunity via vaccines mm -hmm. uh, because then you're increasing the probability that somebody with asthma, somebody with diabetes, somebody that's older than 65, somebody with heart and lung diseases or weak immune system is gonna get the virus. So the yeah. best thing that we can do 
is to follow the precautions. Very simple. Stay at home as much as you possibly can. Congressman, uh, keep, yep. I'm sorry, <laughs> didn't mean to yeah, jump in there. Congressman, you, of course, spent a lot of time both in your life and in your career as a physician working in and around low-income communities. You worked, I think, in a clinic for low-income folks uh, after you graduated, after you became a doctor. And, I, and I'm wondering, you know, as you look around your district and, and hear from other members of Congress who represent lo lots of low-income folks, like, how are you seeing the in inequities in the healthcare system playing out you know, in your district with regard to testing, with regard to access to care, that kind of thing? Well, there's no doubt that in areas where the communities are medically underserved, they don't have enough physicians, enough nurses, enough clinics to even go get the care uh, in a good day, uh, nonetheless in a bad day during a pandemic. And one of the things that we're concerned about in the distribution of these tests is that those that have more uh, resources will receive the uh, or will have the ability to to purchase the test and they will uh, test the communities in those areas. Uh, and we're seeing that here, for example, in the uh, city of Coachella, which is one of the more medically underserved areas, there's only been one positive coronavirus reported. Uh, and that's simply because the people of Coachella don't have access to the test that other more affluent communities have, like Palm Desert, for example, in the Coachella Valley. So that's why it's important that public health experts and uh, and leaders uh, account for the disparities in healthcare to make sure that uh, everybody is being tested, that everybody's receiving care. Because you know, in this pandemic, we want to make sure that as many people uh, that we have surveillance and testing for as many people possible in order to shorten the uh, length of transmission and the peak of transmission. And I'm working with a local hospital and a, uh, a tribe in my district to precisely uh, start drive-through testing in the poor areas of the, uh, of the district. That's great because we know that it's clearly not just only going to affluent areas. The LA Times had a big story about this uh, inequity as well. Um, very quickly before we go to break, um, Dr. Ruiz, I'm curious, um, Speaker Pelosi has already started talking about the possibility of another bill to help stimulate the economy or to help local governments. Um, what do you think Congress needs to do moving forward after these first two bills, including this huge, uh, this huge $2.2 trillion package? Well, the number one priority needs to be saving lives still and to reduce the spread of the virus and also the length of time the virus continues to spread. The depth of our recession, the depth and the length of time of the recession is directly proportional to the peak of transmission and the length of time that the coronavirus is still propagating in our, com our communities. So by aggressively dealing with the immediate need, which is to save lives and build capacity and uh, and to stop the spread of the virus, we're going to be helping improve already the economy from, uh, from falling further into a depression. So the number one thing we need to do is we need to increase access and support for families for the treatment of coronavirus. I have a bill out there that's called Care uh, for COVID-19 Act. And that, what that would do is it would make not just the testing, which is already covered uh, through the Family First Coronavirus Response Act, but also 
the treatment, the diagnostics and treatment will be covered by private health insurances so people don't have extraordinary amounts of deductibles and co-pays. Uh, and so we also need to make sure that we have the equipment to keep the frontline workers safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we expand the healthcare infrastructure to, to quickly respond to the surges that we're seeing around the different country. In addition to that, uh, thinking more long term in terms of development and getting ourselves out of this recession, uh, we're focusing on infrastructure packages to put people back at work. Uh, after the massive uh, unemployment numbers that we're starting to see. And we want to do it in a way that does not add to the pollution. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, we are going to take a short break now. And when we return, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Raul Ruiz, a congressman from the Coachella Valley. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Maria Salagos here with Scott Schaefer. And today we are so pleased to be talking to Dr. Raul Ruiz. He is a congressman representing California's Coachella Valley. And he was an ER doctor before coming uh, to Congress. But uh, Dr. Ruiz, you have a really remarkable personal story as well. Um, You were born in Mexico and your biological mother died just before you were born or as you were born. Um, And you ended up moving, (laughs) probably not before you were born. That's in my notes. Some levity there, guys. <laughs> Glad you're laughing, Congressman. I'm sorry. The, the, see, see, we make mistakes here. Um, so, um, you were sent to uh, the states to live with um, your father's sister and her husband. They became your 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 parents. Um, can you talk about what your childhood was like? Did you grow up knowing this story about your biological parents? Um, was that something that was talked about a lot? 
No, not at all. Uh, okay. In fact, I wasn't told till about ten years old. Oh wow! Uh, my my memory my memory always started living with my mother, father, Gilbert, Blanca, Ruiz, and my siblings, Robin and Star, and uh, and it was one of those things that we re- just really don't uh, necessarily talk about because, mm. of course, my 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 parents, uh, my mother and father, always uh, saw me as as their own, and they cared for me and loved me as their own, and so it was it was the rest of the family of course knew and and we all accepted uh and uh and so it was you know it was interesting it was interesting uh knowing after 10 years old yeah that's pretty remarkable to not know for that long how did you process that as a little as a little boy really and and you know what was what was the message your uh your your adoptive parents you know gave to you in growing up like what did they expect from you as you got older well, they, they, they basically treated me like they, of course, they like their son because there's, you know, there was no difference or, or concern uh, or in treatment or love that we received. And so for me, it was a full acceptance and, and full uh, embracing of, of my parents. And, uh, and so when I refer to my mom and dad, I refer to them as my mom and dad and anybody else is my biological father my biological mother uh and uh and even now it's just uh, it's just what we do and and so in terms of processing it i mean i think that that like any any boy who uh who learns of that uh there's uh, some wondering and, 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 and of course there, there could be some, some concerns when they're, you know, alone at night and thinking about, you know, their life. But I, I always grew up with a very strong sense of faith in God. And I always had this very strong sense of love from my family and acceptance. And so I focused more on, on that and uh, and the teachings of of my faith and 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 praying and and feeling loved uh, unconditionally by a creator and empowered that uh, through God all things are possible and and having this strong sense of, of faith and social justice uh, being raised in a farm working poor yeah, community I wanted to ask it really me. didn't it really didn't affect me yeah, I want to ask about that because your um your your mother picked crops, your father I think fixed farm equipment at one point, worked in warehouses. Can you talk about their work ethic and sort of what that instilled in you? I mean, because it's a pretty uh, big jump to go from there to being a doctor and a member of Congress. Yeah, well, you know, we lived in a trailer uh, my first few years of my life, and my dad was a mechanic in the fields. Uh, and, uh, my mother at that point, uh, after they got married, uh, uh, stayed at home and, and, uh, had my older brother and, uh, took care of us before my little sister was, uh, was born. Uh, but when my dad was promoted to work in a, a packing house, that's when we moved into our home in Coachella where my mother still lives. Uh, and, uh, definitely I've learned the, the discipline and the work ethic through my parents, uh, my, they worked very hard with calloused hands and minimal rest and tired backs day after day after day, and and they always instilled this sense of of um, of confidence that through practice, through work, things will get better. Uh, and I'll tell you a story. One day, my my brother. <laughs> 
my brother he um he was he was being scolded by my mother why he didn't do his homework and and so my my he was like uh, 12 years old at the time and he was telling my mother why does he need to do why do i need to do homework why can't i just go out and help the family and work and help pay the bills and so my mother brought in my father and i thought my father was going to give him a scolding too but instead he's like sure you're coming with me tomorrow so the next morning uh i didn't see my brother when i woke up and he came in later very dirty exhausted went to bed and th that happened for about five six days and finally my brother was there <laughs> was there with me and I'm like what happened I thought you wanted to work he's like no way man it's too hard a little taste of the and, real world yeah so so I said you know what I'm I'm going to you know ever since I was four four years old I said I want to be a doctor and I'm going to go help and so I'm going to study and uh, my mother used to say you know you got to study so that you can get a job indoors uh, and I have to work outdoors in 120 degree weather like well, we do here in the Coachella Valley that, area. yeah I was going to say in the Coachella Valley you can say that in San exactly. Francisco yeah. not so much so Congressman you have a, an amazing background in your education you went to I believe UCLA undergrad then you have three degrees from Harvard but when you were getting ready to go to UCLA you came up with a really unusual way to raise money to pay for books and that kind of thing. Tell, tell us about it and, and how you came up with the idea. Well, I remember, you know, my older brother was the first to graduate from high school in the family. And he was also the first to go to college. And I remember one day my mother said that, uh, that it will, may be very difficult for me to go to college because we might not be able to afford it. And I, I said, oh, no, man, I have to go to school because I'm going to be pre-med and I got to go to medical school. So I went to my dad's room. He was watching the ball game. It was in the evening, chewing sunflower seeds. And I said, Dad, I'm going to help you pay for school. And, of course, he looked at me because I was working, sweeping the floors and stacking uh, empty boxes for the pack in the packing house at that time uh, working a minimum wage job and so what I did was I, I, I put on the one suit I owned it was this god-awful itchy blue suit I bought it two sizes larger uh, not knowing I would you know so I can grow into it but at 17 I you know I didn't grow much anymore so it was <laughs> quite awkward Oops. and I bought a briefcase and typed a, a, a contract with a typewriter because you know we couldn't afford computers at home so I used the typewriters at the high school and I printed out these contracts and so what I did is I went around the small business communities and I would walk into their stores here's during the summer I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a suit looking as professional as possible I'm pulling out uh, my borrowed briefcase and the contracts and I would uh, I would hand them to the clerk or the owner whoever would listen to me and I'm and I would say I'm offering you an opportunity to invest in your community by investing in my education because I promise you I will be a doctor and I will come home and serve the community Wow. And you did. And after, as yeah. Scott said, three degrees at Harvard, we can put that aside. That's a little overachieving for me. But, um, <laughs> but you know, you did come back. You did work in the ER. Um, and I and I know you've you did a lot also around sort of mentoring students in the community, working at clinics. Um, did you ever? I, I don't know. Was there ever a moment where you thought, okay, like this, this was my life's work and I, I will be here forever? Like how, how did you then come to, to run for Congress? Very interesting question. Um, well, when I came back, I started 
these mentorship programs. I started uh, free public health education uh, programs in the pork farm worker trailer park communities. I helped organize free medical care at, at health fairs. I helped found a, uh, a clinic that's a free clinic for the poor in the area. And of course, in the emergency department, we see everybody with insurance, with no insurance, and oftentimes those that struggle uh, in life uh, go to the emergency department when they're severely sick because they just can't afford the prevention or the treatment to begin with. So when when I was doing this work, the congresswoman at the time was just voting to privatize Medicare, to cut Pell Grants for the students, to, to, um, to cut the Medicaid programs and doing everything contrary to what my work in the community was. And so uh, what, what, you know, my my parents taught me that you know instead of complaining just do something about it to be a problem solver to 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 really participate in 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 changing things so so i said i'm going to run for office and uh, and of course that that uh, raised a lot of eyebrows because i never held office before nor did i ever participate in anybody's campaign before Congressman, we're really short on time, but, uh, you know, you've worked, obviously, in emergency rooms. You're working in Congress now for your constituents, and which can be very frustrating, especially if you're in the minority. And I'm wondering, like, how do you compare those two environments, an ER and Congress, and which, where do you think you can do the most good? You know, that's a good question, because I, I ask myself that question every day. Um, how can I best serve people and I see Congress as a toolbox to do that. This is not, this was never in my dream job or my career. This is, isn't a, a post that, uh, that I feel that, you know, I've actually um, accomplished something. It's, it's a toolbox that allows me to, to really improve the lives of the American people and in particular uh, communities like uh, where I grew up, which is here in the Coachella Valley. Uh, so, so right now is a clear example. Am I most effective taking care of patients one at a time in a, the emergency department during the pandemic? Or am I able to work still as the emergency department team, but on the outside of the emergency department where I can problem solve not only locally to expedite efficiencies, to mobilize field medical sites like I have uh, with the governor's office and brought one here in, in this fragile Coachella Valley, but also really work on influencing the administration to uh, better massively produce products right. uh, that we need. And, uh, and right now, my emergency department friends uh, are saying, stay where you're at. We need you there. Right. And I can make large population-based changes that can save lives, not one patient at a time, but hundreds of thousands of lives. All right. Doctor and Congressman Raul Ruiz, thank you so much for joining The Breakdown and uh, keep doing that work out there. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here. That's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Jim Bennett. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Jonathan Blakely, and Julie Kane. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on M Lagos. Thanks for listening. 
Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Thanks.